Open your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 20. You know, I love a story with a good uh, twist in the plot, that sort of, sort of unexpected ending or turn of events that uh, may sort of challenge the assumptions you had about the characters or the story or sometimes even challenge assumptions that you had about yourself along the way. Uh, back in uh, Great Expectations at the end when you find out that Pip's benefactor is really this convicted convict, uh, or I guess what you, condemned convict, I don't, I don't know how you would say that, but or in 1984 when you find out the Ministry of Truth is really this massive enterprise of deception, or even in To Kill a Mockingbird when you find out at the end that the person who saved all the kids was this reclusive Boo Radley, right? I mean, you, you don't know those things. You don't even always anticipate those things at the beginning. But when they happen, they sort of are this aha moment and cause you to stop and reflect on everything you've read and kind of what you've thought all along. Well, this morning we come to uh, what is uh, one of the classic uh, plot twists that you'll find anywhere. And it's in the story that Jesus gives us or the parable that Jesus gives us here in Matthew Uh, chapter 20. It's a passage that has intrigued me really all of my Christian life because of the simplicity of the story and the twist in the plot that I think unlocks for us some of the most profound mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and of the human heart in general. This is a story that we sometimes call the story of the laborers in the field, but it's really not about the laborers. Some people have called it the story of the generous landlord, and, and certainly while he is the central character in the plot, and, and it is his inexplicable mercy that sort of is the heartbeat of the story, it really is more about a principle. It's highlighting and, and illustrating a principle for us, a principle that we're supposed to understand through the images that are given to us here. And, and before we get to that, let me just sort of capture once again in our minds the full scope of this by reading in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up into the first. And when, those who, uh, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first 
and the first last. You read the entire story and you see the twist and then you realize when you get at the very end that this entire story is meant to help us understand that pithy proverb that comes at the end, the last will be first and the first will be last. You may not realize it though, that is not the first place we've seen that. As a matter of fact, uh, you may remember that's how chapter 19 ended with that same proverb, but actually in inverse order. He says in chapter 19, verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. In technical terms, we would call that an inclusio, sort of bookends. They stand as two walls, if you will, on either side of this story, kind of making it one complete structure. And you can see more clearly in the first word of chapter 20 that Jesus is intentionally including that first statement. He says, for, there in verse 1, uh, meaning that this is sort of an explanatory clause. He's, he's wrapping this entire story into the previous context or, or letting us know that the story, the parable, is intended to help us understand that previous context, which if you were with us last week, you remember. It's a story of a, a rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking what he needed to do to be saved or what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him, keep the commandments. And And then eventually told him that if he really wanted to be a disciple, he had to be willing to forsake everything he had and follow Jesus. And and as we know, he didn't do that. He turned away and uh, walked away from from Christ uh, very sadly. It was at this point that Jesus started to expound to his disciples how impossible it was for those whose hearts are gripped by the things of this world to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible, he says, for the rich to enter into the kingdom, more impossible than a a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There are so many things, in other words, that are clouding their, uh, their vision and gripping their hearts. They cannot see their need. They are not compelled by the things of the gospel because of their uh, uh, attachment to the things of this world. At that point, the, the disciples begin to sort of, if you will, reflect on this and begin to ask the question, well, I mean, if that's true, who can be saved? And you may remember Jesus' response that the things which from a human standpoint are impossible from a divine standpoint are possible. In other words, those people that from our outward perspective appear to be so steeped and so gripped by the world, so enmeshed in the things of the world, we might imagine that they would never respond to the gospel. Jesus is telling them, even there, God can work. Even there, God can work. If he chooses, he can move in the heart of even the most worldly, the most wealthy, the most sort of prestigious and the most influential or whoever it might be so that they lay aside all of their vanity. Uh, They lay uh, lay aside all of their luxury. They lay aside whatever is necessary and gladly surrender it to be faithful and to follow Christ. Well, it's at this point, you may remember Peter pipes up and says, well, we left everything and followed you. And then he sort of lets out that question that inevitably rises in everyone's heart who makes those kinds of sacrifices. He says, well, well, what's going to be there for us in the end? 
What, what, when the kingdom finally comes, I mean, we're, we're going to, are all the sacrifices we made, are, are they really going to be worth it in the end? Jesus assures him that indeed all of those sacrifices, you can have confidence that the, your reward awaiting for you in the kingdom will far outweigh any of the temporal pain that you have experienced in cutting ties with houses or land or family, or friends, or jobs, or whatever it might be. You, you will receive, he says, as a matter of fact, all those things in return, you'll receive a hundred times over what you gave up. And it's at this point that Jesus then gives them this pithy little proverb. The last will be first, and the first will be last. And you remember, we talked about this uh, last week, how, how that proverb was intended to sort of summarize everything he's been saying, that you, you cannot go on the basis of your worldly assumptions. You cannot evaluate life that you're seeing, the people that you're engaging with, even those that you're sharing the gospel with, the responses that they may have. You can't judge any of the things that your eyes see based on those those notions that come to you by outward appearance or by worldly measures. Because that's not the way that the kingdom of heaven is, uh, it, it operates. That's not the way that the kingdom of heaven is evaluated. In the end, the last will be first and the first will be last. And then Jesus launches into this story, this parable, to sort of explain all of that. And, he, and along the way, he, he leads them through this kind of drama, deliberately unfolding, if you will, by degree, this very peculiar day in the life of some day laborers. And as it unfolds, sure enough, it defies all the expectations that you would have from the world with this interesting twist at the end meant to illustrate this very important kingdom principle. It really is illustrating the principle of God's unconditional grace that the fact that he invites all and grants all the reward of eternal life, not on the basis that you might think, not on the basis of anything in this world, but on the basis of his unconditional grace. And, and the way you see that really is through the character of this landowner. It's through how he responds and how he acts in all of these various ways. And, and you see all the elements of his character shining forth that, that kind of build on one another progressively as you move through the story, all intended to bring you to an understanding of why the kingdom operates the way it operates, why God has has ordained and why God has planned it so that the first will be last and the last will be first. There are four, I think, of the four of these characteristics, these incredible insights into the characteristics of God that manifests this unconditional grace in salvation. The first one you might just note in verses one and two is just the initiative that God takes. He, he is the one who sets all of this in motion by going out to the marketplace to invite these workers. He does that uh, not because uh, necessarily they are the ones who are, uh, uh, you know, the most, the most worthy or, or the most desirable or any of that. 
He does that simply of his own initiative. And in this way, it illustrates what we find throughout the rest of the scripture. The fact that we love because God first loved us. The fact that we are in his kingdom, if we are in his kingdom, not because we necessarily were seeking him out, but because he was seeking us out. Because he was the one who came to us. And this parable becomes a, the, the excellent vehicle to demonstrate all that because it gives this story of these day laborers uh, that were being called into the intense work of the vineyard. We don't have a lot of details. It's really, uh, it's really not the point of the story. You might assume that, that this was uh, you know, some sort of desperate time. Some people have tried to imagine that this was the harvest season and the, the uh, owner was coming coming into, the, into the, the marketplace desperate for workers, uh, you know, that he had to get all this done before the rainy season came or he would spoil his, his crop and lose his grapes or maybe he was installing one of, these, uh, one of these vineyards on the hillsides of Israel and it was labor intensive, he had to dig through all this rock and all that, but none of that is highlighted in the story because none of that is the point. The point is, in other words, not the need of the landowner, The point is the plight, really, of these workers. They were in a desperate situation like all day laborers were in those days. They typically were the bottom rung, if you will, of the socioeconomic scale. Many of them didn't have any sort of guarantee of their their food for the next day unless they found work that particular day. They had no special skills. They weren't necessarily... Uh, you know, special craftsmen. They weren't landowners. They weren't even slaves that would have had the guarantee of a roof over their head and a meal on the table every night. These were guys that lived day to day. And every day they woke up, they would, they would sort of march their way out into the marketplace as it were, out into the barren desert, hoping to find some oasis to keep them going till the next day. And every morning they would watch as, as various employers would come along and call away a, a few other uh, workers. All of them had experienced the, the, the dashed hopes that they might uh, have work that day only to see it sort of evaporate like a mirage in front of them. They felt the anxieties like they were on a precipice about to be pushed over into a deep uh, a so, sort of gulf. They felt the anxieties every day of their own mortality and the responsibilities that they had to bring home food for their wife and for their kids. All the pressure that, that came with that. They, they felt all of that along the way. And they would have showed up this morning with that same sort of sense of, of vulnerability that they had every day and the same sort of anguish that was on their horizon uh, on their minds and they would scan the horizons uh, like they did every day hoping and looking for opportunities that might come even while in their hearts there was gnawing within them the realization that they were at the end of their of their resources this is the state really of everyone entering the kingdom of heaven this is the picture that Jesus chooses to present 
This is you in your natural state. You are like this day laborer yearning for someone who could provide you hope. And there are perhaps any number of employers who come along and offer you work in their fields. For some, they will go into the labors of vanity and the empty pursuits of the world, chasing after those who are promising them some payment at the end, but they're only going to find disappointment. For others, though, they'll hear the call of the kingdom. They'll be in the marketplace, and one day they will find the generous and gracious landowner who comes to them, and he offers to them to come and to work in his vineyard. And this particular uh, landowner was offering a denarius for a day's labor of work. Now, we know from ancient records, a denarius was the pay of a Roman soldier for a day of work. But that would have been actually really good pay. Day laborers weren't typically even paid as well as soldiers. They would often make half a denarius or somewhere uh, in that range. And so for him to come and to offer them a full denarius for a day labor, they would have been ecstatic. They would have jumped at that opportunity whenever that was offered to them, eager to go and eager to make a, a good day's living, a generous day's living for a day, a, a, a day of labor. And so they go, as they uh, rightly would, with all of the sort of joys in their heart of being selected, of having the opportunity, of having their needs met as they were hoping for at the beginning of that day. But that's not the end of the picture for this landlord, because we notice in verses 3 through 7, another element that goes beyond just this initiative It goes into the compassion because we're told that the landowner goes back again and again and again and again to this marketplace. He goes out, we're told in verse 3, at the third hour, which would have been uh, around 9 o'clock. The day uh, for, in a Jewish mind, the day began at sunrise around 6 o'clock. And then they counted the hours from there. And so the first hour would have been 6. That's when the early workers were taken. Now you have those at the third hour. He saw others standing and he told them to go into the vineyard. And then we're told in verse 5 that he went out again about the sixth hour at the sort of height of noon. And even at the ninth hour at 3 o'clock in the afternoon after the day had already begun to wane. And he's calling these workers as well, saying to them, why are you standing here? idle. We're not sure, uh, you know, all the details of why they were, but they say that no one has invited them. Uh, we, we assume that they weren't there early on or the landowner owner would have invited them. He keeps going back looking for more and more workers. Maybe these were the ones who, who lived too far away, or maybe they had some sort of uh, physical impairment, some sort of handicap that prevented them from getting there at the crack of dawn, or maybe they had other responsibilities, or maybe they had already pursued some sort of dashed hope uh, of some other job opportunity that didn't materialize, and now they're, they're sort of making their way back to the marketplace in disappointment, knowing, knowing that they had already failed, that they were already facing the the crisis of not being able to provide for their family and for themselves. But for whatever reason, he finds them there. They weren't there earlier. And seeing that they're available, he calls them. You go too. 
and I'll give you whatever is right. He doesn't even talk to them about payment. They don't really even care at this point. They're just so thankful that in spite of the passing day and in spite of all the missed opportunity, they're just thankful because they know their choices are very limited at this point. Uh, they just want to seize whatever opportunity they, they can. And it happens, as I said, at the ninth hour, and then it happens at the sixth hour. He goes out and he finds more, no doubt, grateful, uh, so grateful that they found these opportunities so late in the day. And then at the, uh, at the uh, 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 three o'clock hour, he goes out and finds them as well, the ninth hour. And then, and then most noteworthy, he comes again at literally the 11th hour, approximately 5 p.m. He goes out and he finds one more group that he discovers have been standing there idle all, way, all day. He asks them, why are you standing here? He says, no one's, no one's called us. Uh, no one's invited us. They had been uh, literally in, unemployed all day. No one had sought them out. And as I said, maybe it's because they had some impairment. Maybe for whatever reason, among all the workers that were taken, they were the ones who were least desirable, overlooked by everyone else, not really thought worthy to be called for any reason. And in, in his compassion, the landowner engages them. And of course, they seize the opportunity. Not even asking what they're going to be paid, just thankful for one hour of work. This last group of men, no doubt, were acutely aware, more than anyone else, of how narrow their hope was. Uh, they had... As I said, they had gone through, they had endured the heat of the day, they had endured the dashed hopes again and again and again of seeing other people called out. They were acutely aware of how desperate their situation was. And then this gracious man shows up. Again, this is pictures of kingdom realities. These men or women or men, I guess in this situation, for whatever reason, had missed the earlier calls of God. They had missed the earlier calls of this landlord. Uh, he apparently had not seen them or not known them, or maybe this was a different marketplace. We don't really know, but, but they had missed the call of God. And they had faced all of the sort of brutal realities of life and of the day without the hope. But now, here he is. He hasn't stopped coming. He hasn't stopped calling. He hasn't stopped seeking. He is looking for any of them because he understands the desperate situation that they're in. You might imagine if you've been left out. You might imagine if you've seen other people pass by. You might imagine when God has uh, been gracious and favorable to someone else. You might imagine that uh, that's because he has intentionally passed you by. You might imagine that it's too late, that, that, that God's really not that interested in you, but this parable is telling you that that's not the case. And it doesn't matter when and it doesn't matter uh, uh, how often you've heard the call. It doesn't really matter. He keeps coming and he keeps calling and he keeps looking for those who are available, for those who are willing to come into his vineyard. He keeps wanting any and every worker who knows their desperate state and is willing to answer the call of this landlord. He's compassionate, calling sinners into his kingdom. And when he comes, when he calls, he's not calling you as a, some sort of second 
rate, second class worker. He's not calling to treat you worse than anyone else. He's calling and he intends to make you, even the last, to deal with you as graciously as he did the first, which is really the third incredible insight into this landowner you see in verse 8, his impartiality and the way that he deals with all of these people. This is really where the twist in the plot comes because we we begin to understand now the pithy little proverb that he had introduced at the very beginning because at the end of the day, he gathers all the workers together and they all are given the same pay. They all finish at the same spot, if you will. He understands the significance of what this means to all of them. And he wants to ensure that they are recipients. And he wants to do it on that day. This is what would have been required by the law. The law says in Leviticus 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor or plunder him. The earnings of the hired laborer shall not tarry in your possession through the night until the dawn or Deuteronomy. You must tender his wages on the appointed day before the sun sinks on the horizon. This landowner not only would have understood the mandates of God's law, but he would have been sort of constrained by his own sort of empathy for the destitute and oppressed position of these laborers. That's why God's law demanded that they be paid that day because they needed the pay that day to feed their families. And so he begins to pay out to all of them. Now, normally, uh, what the, the way this would have unfolded is that those who were most Uh, paid the most would have been paid the first. Those, in other words, who had begun the day working and had worked the most would have been the first to be paid because they were, at least from a a sense of uh, worldly perspective, they were the most entitled. But that's not the way he does it. In fact, he He intentionally leaves those workers till the very last. He calls his foreman and he begins to distribute the wages beginning with the 11th hour workers. And they come and they received a full day's wage for one hour of work. And as the others come, those who were hired at the ninth hour, those who were hired at the sixth hour, those who were hired at the third hour, same thing happens over and over again. And you can imagine at the end of the line, these early workers, the first hour workers, they were watching all this unfold and like anyone else, they started to do calculations in their, in their head. Well, wow, this guy is incredibly generous. Can you see what he's, he's paying those guys a full denarius for one hour of work? Man, he is so generous. He, I can't believe how generous this guy is. If he's that generous with them, just think about how generous he's going to be with me. But that sort of assessment of the landowner's character doesn't remain. Uh, The jubilation that they felt as they saw the first workers get paid slowly sort of erodes and is transformed into actual animosity. Down in verse 15, he actually says they begrudged his generosity. The, 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 The Greek says they had an evil eye toward him. They were glaring at him by the time they showed up. Arms crossed, lips puckered out, eyes slanted, 
This, this owner that they were celebrating and rejoicing in and praising just a few moments earlier, now suddenly was their enemy. Now, if you've ever been on a job site, you know grumbling is nothing novel. Like you could ask any foreman or superintendent among us uh, about his experiences and he could fill your ear with all kinds of stories about people grumbling and complaining on the job site and that's probably just from this week. It's just as very, very common. But this is different. This is different because anyone who reads this story and anyone who inter- interacts with the story seems to sympathize with these workers that their complaint is just, that things don't seem to be adding up. All this seems to be very, very unfair. And all of that is because you and I cannot detach ourselves from the sort of the, the prevailing norm in our, our mindset that compensation, that reward ought to be aligned with services provided. And so when one individual is rewarded significantly beyond what was merited, we calculate and we assume that everyone else must be rewarded more. But that's the point. That's the whole twist. That this is not the way the kingdom operates. The kingdom doesn't operate on the basis of, of a various and a calculated return for every individual. This is meant to challenge your fundamental bias towards self-interest. To assume, as you measure yourself against someone else, to assume that whatever God is going to give to you is going to be a reflection of your individual devotion or sacrifice or whatever it might be. You know, if you watch a race and you see the runners all line up in the starting blocks and you hear the sound of the gun and you watch them sort of launch out and eventually the most gifted or the most well-trained begin to pull away from the pack and you're watching them sort of come around the corner and as they make their final uh, stretch towards the end, it would be disruptive if those most gifted and well-trained athletes sort of stopped at the fin- uh, right before the finish line and waited for all the laggards to sort of catch up so that they could all link arms and cross the finish line together. That doesn't make sense to us. We're thinking, well, what's the point of the race? Because we assume the point of the race is to prove who's the strongest and who's the most fit and who's the most well-trained. But if in their minds the point of the race is that everyone crosses the finish line, it makes total sense. In other words, if the point of the race is that the last would be first and the first would be last, this is exactly the way the race is supposed to end. And of course, in this story of the vineyard, the point is not to prove who was stronger or who worked longer or who was more sort of, uh, sort of burdened or any of those other things. The point is that everyone receives what everyone needs. You come at the 11th hour. You need God's provision. You need God's salvation. But even if you come at the first, you're just in in desperate of a need. He has no obligation to hire you, has no obligation to give you a denarius and to be so generous with you. He could have passed you over as much as anyone else. But see, we, we, we're transformed sometimes. 
We get the call and we're elated, we're thankful, we're overwhelmed that, that this landowner would call us into his kingdom and into his work. But then once we start the work and once we start to do the labor and once we feel the heat and after we're making all the sacrifices, we change. We change. And we start to look around and we start to see the other people who weren't responding, who didn't show up early on, who haven't necessarily borne the same pressures and the same heats. And we start, instead of, instead of recognizing the generosity of this, of this Savior and this God, we start to calculate and we start to assume that because we were first, that we should be first. Because they were last, that they should be last. That because we were there early, we're more deserving. And because they came late, that they're less. See, we're just evaluating on worldly standards. And all of these sort of truths begin to erupt on us as we're moving through the parable. The parable is meant to help us to wipe out all those distinctions so it doesn't really matter if you're a wealthy young guy who winds up giving up a lot of money or if you're just some sort of obscure nobody that hardly anyone would recognize or know carrying out the faithful Christian life sort of in the confines of your home or your work environment. It doesn't really matter if you come to Christ early or it doesn't really matter if you tried laboring in the vain fields of the world and found it fruitless in the end, and then finally you come sort of uh, crouching your way into the, the, the vineyard of the, of the Savior. It doesn't really matter because no one deserves to be there to begin with because His generosity is more than anyone really deserves because God doesn't really measure by worldly standards. We, we see the missionary who went and spent 50 years in some sort of uh, rainforest somewhere pouring out his heart in labor and we just think, oh, wow, that guy, I, I, could, I could never be like him and I probably would never be loved by God the same way he's loved. We see the person in the final season of their life having all the scars of the hard labor of enslavement to the world and now bent over from the pain and all the work that they've been under, they finally find themselves invited into the kingdom. And we imagine that uh, God uh, sort of turns his nose up and just barely lets them in. Jesus says, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. The point of all this is not to say that everyone in the kingdom is going to get in and they're just going to barely be given the minimum one denarius for one day's wage. Jesus had already told the disciples, that's not the way it's going to be. If you sacrifice something, you're going to receive a hundredfold more. This is not, that's not the point of the story to tell you that you're going to get the bare minimum. It's not even really the point of the story to say that everyone's going to get the maximum. There are clear distinctions that are going to be there in the kingdom. The scripture is full of those kinds of statements that he who's faithful with little is going to be faithful with much. The, the point of the story is not any of that. The point of the story is that whatever you receive, you don't deserve. No matter how, how the distinctions are sort of balanced out in the end, no one who's in the kingdom and none of the things that they receive in return have anything to do with them. All of them are there because of the graciousness, the initiative of the landowner, the compassion of the landowner, and because of his absolute 
uh, sort of uh, lack of partiality at all. He invites anyone and everyone, no matter where they come, when they come, what they come with, or what they don't come with, he invites them all on the same basis. All that sort of brings you to the final incredible element of this character of the landlord, which is really God's character, and that is His grace. And you see it there in verse 11. They grumbled at at the master of the house saying, these last workers worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They're They're not evaluating him as this generous God anymore. Now they're accusing him, grumbling against him. But he never intended them to compare themselves with other workers. He never intended them to compare themselves and measure themselves by these other rewards. He always wanted them to assess their idea of God, not, the way, not by the way He treats other people, but by how He has treated them. He's not unjust at all. He says in verse 13, friend, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to these last men the same as, I, as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? I mean, he's established the, he's established the parameters. He's established the terms, just like with the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler came, says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, uh, you know, you know what the terms are. You know what God's word says. You keep the law. And of course, the, the guy says, I've kept all these things. Jesus knows that's not true. He knows that no one has. And so in order to sort of highlight all that, he tells them, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. But all that was just really to help him understand that God makes no special provision for him because he's rich. God makes no special provision for him if he was more devoted to religious activity than the next guy. God makes no special provision for any of those people. Everyone who comes into the kingdom comes as a desperate and destitute worker. And they should be grateful to be there. God, God's going to give, and He's going to give generously, but He's going to give you way more than you deserve. And again, it doesn't matter It doesn't matter if you have nothing. And it doesn't matter if you have everything. It doesn't matter if you came early. And it doesn't matter if you have been laboring in the wrong field. It doesn't matter if you've come late. God's not going to treat you as a second-class citizen. This is his point. He's not obligated to anybody. Presumably, he had his own servants already. He probably had those who lived in his household who could have done the work for him. None of that is really the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that he is gracious. He is compassionate. This is the way God is. And he keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps calling to you. Calling to you. And you're waiting and you're standing and you're hoping that you're going to sort of find that purpose. You're going to find that person. You're going to find that direction. You're going to find that labor. You keep hoping that you're going to find that reward in somebody's field. And if you haven't faced a disappointment already, you will. But along the way, he's calling 
for anyone and everyone who will come into his vineyard. And he is promising that he's going to deal with you with grace. You'll receive, like everyone else, a crown of life. You'll receive, like everyone else, a crown of righteousness. You'll receive, like everyone else, an incorruptible crown. Many, many fold and eternal life, as he says. Father, these are uh, important, so vital for us to, to grasp as believers, but all the more for those who are here today who, who don't realize that they're standing and seeking and waiting, that they're desperate and destitute. They work hard, they go out to the fields every day, but they find themselves every night at the same place. Hopeless, helpless, facing ruin. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their state today. I hope that they would understand what a gracious thing it is that you would come and you would call them away from all their other labors and to yourself. And for those of us who have come, I pray that you would fill us with renewed sense of awe and wonder that you have been so gracious to us and that we would rejoice with every laborer who comes through the gate early, middle of the day, or late. Those who come with much and those who come with little, I pray that we would rejoice in your gracious provision for all of them because we have received it too. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.